Welcome to Hang Your Hat. This is episode 17. I'll see you in September. As the saying goes, all good things must come to an end, and summer vacation is no exception. It's almost time for the kids to go back to school. But do you know why school starts this time of the year? It's probably not what you think. In this episode, I will discuss the structure of the American educational system, why U.S. schools start each year around September, ways to make the back-to-school transition as easy as possible, and the oldest educational institution in the world. So grab a pencil and some paper and get ready to take some notes on this week's episode of Hang Your Hat. Since I'm going to be talking a lot today about the U.S. educational system, and a large portion of my listeners are not American, I thought it would be a good idea to start out with a short description of the American educational system. So I set out to write a quick overview and quickly ran into a problem. Since schools are operated at the state and local level in the U.S. rather than at the federal level, there is not really any standardization between states. Each state, or even city, can operate its schools a little differently, so it's hard to say anything that applies to all schools. That being said, there are general trends that most states follow to some extent. I've decided to focus on these general trends, but keep in mind, these are generalizations, and the personal experience of a person at a specific U.S. school might differ quite a bit from what I'm going to tell you. Schools in the U.S. are roughly divided between public and private schools. Public schools are those that are financially supported by the government. Typically, this is the local government. These schools are free to attend, and as much as they don't charge tuition or other fees directly to the students that will be attending. However, since the schools are supported through property taxes charged to the community, there is a cost associated with them. Typically, a student is assigned to a public school based on where the student lives and the school accepts everyone that is assigned to that particular school to attend. The result of this is that public schools tend to be somewhat segregated by income level, since people of similar income levels tend to live near each other in the U.S. Schools in lower income areas also tend to get less funding than schools in higher income areas as well, since U.S. schools are often supported through property taxes, and low income areas typically generate less revenue through property taxes than higher income areas. Private schools are, as the name implies, privately supported, at least traditionally. With school vouchers in the mix, this has become a bit of a gray area, but I'm not really going to go into that. These schools generally charge tuition or other fees to the students that attend, and they can be very selective in who they admit as a student. Most private schools in the U.S. are day schools, rather than boarding schools, meaning that the students live at home with their families and attend school during the day, rather than living at the school full-time. Most kids start school when they are four to six years old, beginning with kindergarten and then proceeding into the first grade. Public schooling generally ends when students are 17 or 18 years old and are in the 12th grade. The grades are generally broken up into three different schools. Elementary schools typically house kindergarten through fifth or sixth grade. Middle school, also sometimes known as junior high school, usually houses sixth through eighth grades or seventh through ninth grades and high school generally house 9th or 10th graders through 12th grade. 
After students graduate from high school, they have the option of attending a public or privately funded university or college to pursue an academic degree, such as a bachelor's degree. Nearly all of these have criteria that the student must meet before the student would be allowed admittance into the school, and these criteria can vary quite a bit between schools. The cost of these schools also vary widely. From as little as $11,500 per year on average at a public two-year college to as much as $45,300 per year on average at a private four-year university. Students can seek financial aid to cover their schooling costs, but very few students get all of their educational expenses covered, even those in relatively cheap schools. And those that do typically get private scholarships rather than relying on state or federal financial aid. Students typically take loans to cover costs that they cannot pay out of pocket and are not covered by grants or scholarships. The result is a significant amount of student debt. The U.S. class of 2016 graduated with an average of $37,000 in student debt. One thing that is a pretty universal part of the American school system is that the school year starts in the fall right around September. Why this seemingly arbitrary start time? Well, the answer to that is up next. I did an informal survey about why U.S. schools start around September every year, and everyone I asked had the same answer, that it dates back to America's agrarian roots. In the summer, kids stayed home to help on the farm. School started back up after the harvest when they were no longer needed. Everyone I asked, everyone thought this was the truth, and I will admit that I did too. But we were all wrong. If you really stop to think about it, this myth about the school start time cannot possibly be true. Most of the work on the farm is done in the spring when crops need planting and baby animals are being born, and in the fall when the crops are being harvested. The summer is when the plants grow, and there is less active work going on. There would be no need to have extra help in the summer. The time you would really need the kids at home lending a hand is in the spring and the fall. In the early 19th century, most rural schools in the U.S. had two terms, winter and summer. Yes, summer. School was in session when there was less work to do on the farm and closed during the fall and spring when the farm was most busy. Early urban schools had a different calendar. In urban areas, work levels stayed relatively consistent throughout the year. As a result, urban schools had a more or less year-long calendar. Typically, they broke up the school year into four quarters with a week or more of vacation between quarters. The result was that the school year was very long in urban areas, even longer than it is today. For example, in 1842, New York City schools were open 248 days of the year. The standard now is only 180 days. However, this was before school attendance was compulsory, so kids often didn't actually attend all 248 days. By the 1850s, things had started to change. Massachusetts became the first state to make public education compulsory by forcing parents to pay a fine if they didn't send their kids to school. Many other states quickly followed. At the same time, education reformers were trying to improve school standards by making school standards. One of the first things they tackled was the academic calendar. First, they compromised on the length of the school year by averaging out the amount of time that urban kids and rural kids went to school. The length of the rural academic calendar was increased, 
in the urban academic calendar was decrease, settling on the current 180-day school year standard. The September start date seems a bit arbitrary, but the reformers had some reasons for the September start date as well, and those reasons mostly benefited the rich. And the days before air conditioning, summer was hot. Really hot. Those who could afford to escape the heat did by going on long summer vacations. September was right around the time that the temperature in towns became bearable again, and as a result, right around the time that the rich were coming back to town anyway. So the September start date really has nothing to do with the harvest and everything to do with the summer resort season. Now the summer vacation is entrenched, not only in our educational system, but our economy. There is an entire industry built around the summer vacation, including summer camps, amusement parks, tourism, and more. Recently, there's been a lot of debate over whether the 180-day school year concluding with the long summer vacation, which has been the standard for over 100 years, is actually good for kids, educationally or otherwise. The argument basically breaks down into two camps. Those who think the school year is too long and kids need more time to play and enjoy childhood, and those that think the school year is too short and the long summer break causes declines in learning. There are a lot of good arguments on both sides, but I am firmly in the school year is too short camp. I think extending the school year so that the school is in session year-round, interspersed with breaks between terms, will benefit kids from low-income families a lot and will not negatively impact kids from higher income brackets. Kids from disadvantaged families are the most likely to suffer declines in learning during the long summer break, so reducing the length of each break would put lower-income kids on a more even footing as far as learning loss. In addition, the long summer break can put a lot of financial strain on low-income families because they are often forced to find childcare for their school-aged children during the break. While breaking up the long summer vacation into different times during the year would not eliminate the expense, it would spread it a bit more evenly throughout the year, which can make the financial burden a bit easier to bear. Regardless of when the school year starts, the transition from vacation to school can be tough. Next up, I have some tips on making the back-to-school transition as easy as possible. I read a lot of articles this last week about making the transition back to school as easy as possible, and a lot of the suggestions were really good. But I noticed that none of the articles asked actual kids what helped them when they went back to school. So I decided to invite my daughter on the show this week to get her input. If you're a long-term listener or blog reader, you know her as The Girl. This year is a big year for you regarding school, isn't it? Yes, it is. Can you tell everybody what's happening? I am moving on to middle school, transitioning from elementary school, and I'm going to a different school than most of my friends are, so there's going to be a lot of new people, and it's an advanced school, so lots of new things, lots of things I'm not used to, so big year, big things. Is it a little bit nerve-wracking to be going to a brand new school? It is a little bit, because you're worried about what kids are going to do to you since if they know you're not prepared, you're worried about if they're going to tease you or not or anything like that. But this isn't your first time changing schools. It is not. Do you feel like your last school transition went pretty well? Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask, or I'm going to tell you about some of the things that some of the articles I read thought would help the transition back to school, and I want to get your opinion on whether or not you think they would help 
or if there's anything else parents could do to help make the transition back to school easier for their kids. Mm -hmm. So one of the first things that almost every single article suggested was getting back to the school year bedtime and wake-up schedule a few weeks before the school started. What do you think about that? I think that since I never really got off of it, it doesn't really play a very big part in my life, but I think it really would help some kids who go to bed a lot later during the summer because it'll give you a lot more energy, get you more used to waking up at the right time, going to bed at the right time, get you more accustomed for the things that are going to happen during the course of the morning and the evening. I think it might help kids be less tired at school as well. What do you think? I think so. I mean, last year there was this one boy who fell asleep in class multiple times, and I know that it did not feel very good to him when everyone started giggling a little bit when they noticed he started snoring, so I'm fairly certain that he would want to have gotten to a regular bedtime by now. What do you think is a good time for kids to go to bed? Um, it depends on your grade level. If you're like first through third, I think that eight would be a good reasonable bedtime, but fifth through sixth and up, I think nine to ten is a reasonable bedtime. That seems pretty reasonable to me. Maybe a little bit later than I would prefer. But you still got to take into account what kind of homework they're going to be doing. That's true. Hopefully homework can get done during the day. Yeah. So the next thing that was suggested was that families should organize themselves using a family calendar that everybody has access to where room can be made on that calendar for school projects and activities so nothing slips through the cracks. Do you think that's a good idea for families? I think it is a good idea because I am used to not being told anything or forgetting to tell you guys something about a school project or whatever and having to tell you about it at the last moment because I forgot the few month, moments before and then rushing, rushing, rushing to get done right before the due date. What does that make your projects like if you have to rush at the very end? Well, you try to make them professional as possible, but usually that doesn't work out and it usually shows that you were rushing a little bit because paper will be peeling at the edges if it's a poster board or something and maybe it won't, it'll have more grammatical errors if you're typing it on a page because you weren't able to do as many corrections. Can you think of any other benefits that might be had by having a shared family calendar like that? Um, it would probably help other kids in other grades and other people to refer to if you wanted to do something special at one point, but a project or something didn't allow and you didn't really know about that project, so you could just refer to the calendar and you wouldn't have to make that mistake. I think it would also help for kids who want to do something special so they could go to that calendar and maybe look and see if that date that they want to do something special is already taken, like a birthday party or a special event. What do you think? I think that makes sense, yeah. So the next thing that was suggested was meeting the teachers and finding out where the classroom was before school starts. I think that is definitely a good idea, especially if you're going in middle school and up, because getting lost on your way to the classroom is a big embarrassment that I'm sure a lot of people have experienced, and not knowing which teachers are stricter than others, that could be a big helper to know about that. Do you think it would help kids who are going into elementary school or preschool even? 
Um, not as much, but it would be a good idea to meet the teachers in advance. Classrooms are you're usually directed to in lines, but yeah, teachers, that's a good idea. I think so too, because a lot of times kids can be a little bit nervous about going to school for the first time, and having a little bit of exposure beforehand can help make them a little bit less nervous about that. So they also suggested creating a morning routine and getting used to that morning routine before school starts back up, like when you eat breakfast, when you head out the door, things like that. I think that it is actually not as good an idea as some of the other things because it is proven that if you mix up different routines in the morning, it can actually make you smarter and improve your brain over time. Where'd you hear that? It is a show that I really love. I bet a lot of listeners have listened to it and watched it before called Brain Games. Mixing up your routines instead of just sticking to the regular thing. Routines can be done in many different ways, and if you start to get into a bad habit with one routine, it's a good idea to have a few more to refer to. That's true. Do you think it might help kids for the first couple of days to school of school to know what was coming up in the morning? Yes, it would be a good idea to stick to the same routine for the first couple of months, yeah. Okay. So you think maybe after that, start changing it up a little bit? Yes. I think some kids really like routine and some are not quite as, don't need it quite as much. Um, So I think the idea of maybe keeping the same routine for a while and then changing it up is a pretty good one. Maybe it would be good to kind of transition from one routine to the other kind of gradually. For some kids, they might be more sensitive to it. Yes. They also recommended that parents stay positive about how cool school is going to be. What do you think about that? I think the parents are being ridiculous because not all school is going to be cool. And parents should not be lying to their kids about school is awesome. You should love school. Homework is the most amazing thing in the history of everything. Well, do you think they should be saying, school is awful, homework is awful, you're not going to like school? That would be truthful, but I wouldn't put it that harshly. I don't think it's truthful that all kids don't like school or that all aspects of school are bad. That is an argument for a later date. Okay, we'll table this one for now. The articles also suggested that you create a launch pad. This idea of this is that you have a place where you kind of set everything up and ready to go the next morning so that when you're ready to get out the door, you have everything ready to go, you just grab it and leave. I think that that could be a good idea. I mean, if for less organized kids, you lost your backpack in the closet, you're having to dig through all your shoes to find a nice one, your school uniform is dirty if you have one, so you're having to rush really, really quick to catch the bus or anything like that, it would be a good idea in that sense, but for kids who are already more organized and they want to spend a little bit more time if they got up earlier with their parents, and I would think that having a launch pad like that could induce a little bit of angsty. You think? Why is that? Well, it could make them a little bit anxious, having all their stuff kind of looming down on them in this one little place, like by the door or something. So it might make them a little bit nervous. Well, I know that we definitely put things by the door that are kind of unusual, things that we wouldn't normally bring with us every day, but that we want to make sure we don't forget. Do you think that's helpful? I think that would be pretty darn helpful. Yeah? Mm Mm-hmm. So they also suggested, and I think you've kind of hinted at this, is that parents should let kids try to be as independent as possible. 
so that they can start helping with some of these things like putting things on the calendar themselves or getting ready themselves in the morning. What do you think about that? I think that gradually letting your kid be independent as would be acceptable for their age would be a very good idea. Not if your kid is going into fifth grade or sixth grade for the first time, you don't want to be smothering them in kisses, hugging them until their breath is almost expended and they literally can't breathe and you're crushing their ribs. That is not a good idea. You don't like that? No. Oh, good. Okay, I should remember that one. <laughs> what do we think about the younger kids? Younger kids, it would be a good idea to let them know how to do these things, let them do them every now and again, but mostly let the parent do that for the most part. Do you think it'd be helpful for them to practice so they can get better at these kind of things? Yes, it would be a very good idea to let them practice. So how, how would be the, what would be the best way for parents to help kids practice these kind of skills? I would say letting them do like one simple task and put it to them very simply in a way they could understand easily, like below their grade level. Like if your kid is going into kindergarten for the first time, you would want to explain it into how to do these sorts of things in a way that would make sense to a VPK kid, a before kindergarten kid. So they would know, oh, that's exactly how you do it, and do it perfectly right, and look forward to doing something like that the next time. So build confidence by making sure the task is easy enough for them to do? Yes. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. And maybe increasing the number of tasks as they master the first one, adding a second one? Yes, it keeps things interesting, keeps your kid interested, all that good stuff. I think that's very good advice. This is the last suggestion. The article I read suggested that you do a practice run. So basically you try out the morning routine and the route to school a few mornings before it's actually time to go to school. I would say that you would want to do it a few weeks every month before school during the summer sometime because you want to be able to be an expert already at it when it's actually time to do the real thing and actually go to school for the first time there. So you think this one's a good idea? Yes. This one seemed like a bit much for me, like it might be overkill to actually drive to the school and try the actual route out. Yeah, I wouldn't say driving to the school. I'd say just doing your regular morning routine, getting dressed, doing all that going to school stuff, get in the car and be like, okay, we did it. We are awesome at this. <laughs> Do you have any other suggestions for parents of either kids transitioning to middle school or high school or maybe kids going to school for the first time? Going to school for the first time, it's not so bad if you're going to school for the first time in kindergarten or first grade. That's when I went to public school for the first time, really public school, because everything, people want to be your friend. They want to be friends with everyone, so it's not that hard. But when you get up into third grade, fifth grade, going to middle school for the first time, you gotta be on your guard. You gotta keep a positive attitude about everything, keep a thoughtful mind, keep a cool head, and don't let people tease you. It's just letting them boss you around for free. Well, what would you suggest if somebody does tease? Tell a teacher or a parent immediately because they're just gonna keep doing it if you don't tell anyone. Very, very smart advice. Thank you for joining me. Mm-hmm. Anytime. Living in a country where it's hard to find a structure that is more than about 300 years old, 
It's hard to imagine an educational institution that has lasted more than a couple of hundred years. But the world's oldest educational institutions are many times that old. The oldest continually operating university in the U.S. is Harvard University. It was founded in 1636, making it 381 years old, which is, by American standards, really old. The oldest English-speaking university that's still in operation today is Oxford University. It was founded sometime between 1096 and 1167 AD, making it at least 850 years old. The world's oldest university is the University of Bologna. It was founded in 1088. That's 929 years ago. Before the University of Bologna, there were no universities because the word university didn't even exist. It was created upon the institution's founding. However, the University of Bologna still isn't the oldest continuously operating educational institution in the world. That record belongs to the University of Al Karwiyin. The University of Al Karwiyin was founded in 859 AD, making it 1,158 years old. It was originally founded as a religious school or madrasa associated with the Al Karwiyin Mosque in what was at the time Fez, but is now Monaco. Its founder was Fatima Al Firi, the daughter of a wealthy merchant named Muhammad Al Firi. Fatima inherited a large amount of money upon the death of her father and vowed to spend all of it on the construction of a mosque that was suitable for her community. The school was transformed into a university in 1963. However, it still has courses in Islamic studies. Thanks for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the show. I found the show especially interesting to research, probably because my day job is in higher education, and I didn't know all these things before I started researching for the show. I want to apologize for my mispronunciation of some of the names in the oldest universities in the world section. I did look up how to pronounce all of the names, but I am sure I still got some of them wrong. If you would like to correct me, you can send me a voice memo at hangyourhatpodcast@gmail.com. I would also love to hear your feedback on the show. The best place to leave it is in a review on Apple Podcasts. Today's music was by Josh Woodward, and can be found on freemusicarchive.org. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. The Hang Your Hat Podcast is a production of JerkinCrafts.com. That is G E R W E R K E N Crafts.com. You can visit Jerkin Crafts for DIY inspiration, home decor, crafts tutorials, and more.